Hey, I'm Kamara Rose, and this is Everyday Changemakers, conversations with social change practitioners about the journey of personal transformation and social transformation. There's so much pressure on leaders to deliver certainty, to deliver the proof point, to deliver the ROI. And if we can give ourselves enough grace and permission to say, I don't know, that allows us then to reimagine solutions. And I think the answers reside in the subject matter expert. And to me, the subject matter expert is the person that we're trying to serve. This week, I'm talking with Michael Brennan, the co-founder and CEO of Sevilla, a design studio dedicated to change work in Detroit, Michigan. Michael first started to think about how change happens when he was about 10 years old and his mother suddenly passed away. I grew up in a large family, family of six. I was the last of the litter. And I lived in a tight-knit neighborhood and community and church and all of that. And the family was very tight. But when all of a sudden we had this most significant person in the home, my mother, pass away, you had this wider community that just began to show up and help out. And I'm not just talking about a week after she passed away or two weeks after she passed away. I'm talking about six months and a year and beyond, you know, that there was this wider network and community that came together to keep that family whole and moving forward and nurturing it. That could be from meals or helping get kids to different things or helping out with an activity, whatever it might be. And I always say, I think that was at 10 years old that I began to see how things got done, not through the individual effort, but through this collective effort. Michael witnessed his family moving from the very dramatic point of losing his mother and watched how they moved forward over six months, then a year, two years, three years, four years. It sparked an early question for him. How does change actually occur? How do you get from point A to point B? That's the question that Michael has dedicated his professional life to. Right out of college, I started working for United Way in Detroit, Michigan. And I spent my next 32 years working on that mission, both in local communities in Detroit nationally and internationally. But in over 30 years with the United Way, Michael found that change was hard to come by. Too much of the solutions, they were too heavy, too costly, very difficult to scale, not as enduring as we would like. And we're getting improvement. It's not like efforts were unimportant, but they really weren't getting the kind of change that was necessary. If you got many leaders in the change effort or into a quiet space, they would say, it actually doesn't get us as far as we had hoped. It's actually not very sustainable. For example, we have 
well, in America, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of early childhood programs, tens of thousands here in Michigan, a lot of great talent, a lot of terrific work. Yet we have half of the children arriving in kindergarten, not ready for school. And yet most of the programs are successful. Does it mean we just need to amp up the programs just a bit more or is it an extra billion in it? I mean, it just didn't seem to me that the way we kept going after these issues was going to get us there. You have a billion dollars for every grade level here in the state of Michigan. Yet we were increasingly falling behind the country. We were moving into the bottom third. Well, so it wasn't a money issue. There's plenty of talent. You just begin to say, there's got to be another way. And I was part of so many efforts as an organization, as a leader, as a funder, trying to affect change on these. And again, it's not without progress, but not, not certainly to the degree that we had all hoped for. Michael made a decision to take a three-month leave from his role as the CEO of United Way in Southeast Michigan to go to Stanford's D School, their school of design, for an immersive experience in human-centered design, which is simply the practice of designing solutions by learning directly from the person who is being served, sometimes called the user. There probably wasn't a person more ready on the planet for that experience than I. I was one of four executives of a wider group of graduate students that were in this. And part of the experience there was you learned and then you immediately applied. And I was working with the leadership team at Stanford Hospital, the cancer hospital, and we were helping them reimagine the patient experience. With his team, Michael worked to show hospital leaders that they needed to focus their attention on the full patient experience, not just time patients spend in the hospital itself, but the year before they came, and their experience three, four, and even five years after. It's not just what's the experience at the front desk. It causes you as a leader to, in some ways, suspend your bias towards experience and solution, and I know what the problem is, to saying, I actually don't know. I need to work at unlearning. And that my time at Stanford, the hardest work that I was on was unlearning. It required me to actually to say, I don't know, because literally I didn't know. I was using and learning a new set of tools and quickly applying. And in that, that opens up, <laughs> you know, your, your ears uh, widen a bit. They, they begin to hear things that they didn't hear before, right? And you can start to see things because you're actually taking in new context. Right. You know, it makes me think of Zen Buddhism when you talk about not knowing. I know that there's a famous Zen master, and I'm blanking on his name right now, but his mantra was only don't know gets that whole idea of the more like wise you are the more you just know how much you don't know (laughs) right but that state of only don't know 
only don't know puts you in that receptivity, as you're saying, to be open and to see new things and to take in, like you're saying, this wider context. We get so focused on what we need to get done right now and we're losing the big picture. And what you're describing is leading up to that time, I was finding myself in meetings I was very familiar with. I had been in those kind of meetings for decades, community meetings, task forces, committees, and all that. And I was increasingly finding myself saying, I know historically I would actually have a point of view on what the problem is and what the solution, I'd have a strong kind of bias on that. But I'm actually finding myself saying, I actually don't know. And I see more ambiguity than certainty in all of this. And increasingly, that was creating dissonance for me because we live in a world that has this lust for certainty, wants to, wants metrics, ROI, return. And we're asking for that lust for certainty on the human condition. And I began to just feel like, and sometimes I was on Mars because I would sit in sessions like, I don't even know anymore what folks are talking about (laughs) because it doesn't, it seems rooted around the institution or the programs or the money. It's not rooted deeply in this experience of those that we're trying to serve. And there wasn't ill intent at all around the room, but it's just the way that as society and as institutions, we learn to go and solve problems. And that dissonance had me in a role that sometimes I feel like I had a squint to see myself. And I was like, I don't even, that doesn't even feel like me anymore. And my time at Stanford, I arrived with no title. No one knew me from Adam. (laughs) They could have cared less what I did. I was a student learning just like everyone else and I found that incredibly freeing and for the first time in a long time I didn't have to squint to see myself. Michael left Stanford's D school and drove cross-country from California back to Detroit back to his role as CEO of United Way and he carried with him two no matter what's. First, that no matter what, he would pursue the intersection of design and social impact. And second, that no matter what, he would never squint to see himself again. So it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to start doing it. And shortly after I got back, I had a board meeting, which was about 30 member board at the time. And they were asking me questions around what was the experience like and what did you learn? And I remember getting asked that question in different ways about five different times. And I would answer them each time, maybe with a different dimension. But by the time I got to the fifth one, I felt like I had covered most of the ground. And I remember standing in front of the board. It's quiet in the room. And I said to myself, what's the core thing that you learned, Mike? And I looked up at the board and I said, 
I'm done with bullshit. And a lot of times this change work has got a lot of bullshit in it. <laughs> people and, just and then it was and silence you, and then so there's <laughs> dead silence in the room everyone's looking at me and uh and this wonderful board member she runs a foundation here in town she says she was in the back of the room she says well there's a jerry Maguire moment <laughs> <laughs> and i was thinking yeah i need to go and grab the fish the bowl fish, and, yeah but yeah <laughs> who's coming with me coming? Anyone coming with me? Anyone? Uh Um, (laughs) But I think it was a moment now that I can reflect that. I knew knew that role had huge respect for it, huge respect for the board. But much of what was entailed in it was no longer a deep interest to me. And that my interest in going deeper and deeper and deeper into this intersection of design and social impact was going to require a different level of attention than I could give it as the CEO of a very public and important institution. Michael had no idea what he was going to do next, but he knew he needed to make the decision to leave what he had been doing for 32 years. In the fifth month after his return from Stanford, Michael announced he was transitioning out of his role as CEO. But when he looked around, he didn't see any organizations working at the intersection of design and social impact in the way he imagined. So he felt like he needed to take a swing at it himself. I had learned when I was out at Stanford the power of pairs. You paired up with an individual for that three-month experience and you work side by side. And, and I learned through 33 years of marriage the power of pairs. And what I knew is if I was going to go create something, I was done with the single leader at the top model. That it just wasn't very healthy. Leadership roles are inhumane at times, or many times. If I was going to put something in the world, it would take certainly more than I, and I wanted to pair and partner with someone else to do that. Michael invited a gentleman who was part of the teaching team at Stanford's D School out to Detroit. He and his wife, who was also a designer, moved from California. And together, they joined forces. And the three of us came together to say, let's put into the world something that we think that needs to be there, and let's prototype it for four months. We were using our own resources, so we had about enough money to make it for a three, four-month period. We opened the doors in September of 2015 of an organization called Civilla, C-I-V-I-L-L-A, on the belief that change could happen in a different way. And we thought when we opened the organization, we also announced that the day that we were going to close the organization. And we said to everyone, uh, while we're opening, we're also closing December 15th of 2015, four months later. And what we knew is we needed to prototype and explore our ideas. We had many ideas that we were exploring. And we were also exploring this idea of putting an organization into the world together. And we knew each other, but it's not like we had known each other forever. 
and we knew that that would be a long-term commitment that we should really explore what it was like partnering. And so we did that. And at the end of the four months, we closed the doors and we took three months to reflect. Um, what was that experience? Did it give us energy? Did we feel like we put something meaningful into the world? And we ended up continuing on after a three-month reflection, and we scrapped probably 90% of what we tested, and we pulled forward 10% and started building on that. And one of the key things that we began to work on was how might we reimagine how two and a half million residents in the state of Michigan apply for and access public benefits, things such as food, cash, childcare, Medicaid, state emergency relief. Michigan had the longest public benefits application in the country. It had 18,000 words. It had 1,024 questions. It was 45 pages long. Michael and his team decided to reimagine the application through the eyes of the residents who applied for benefits and frontline caseworkers who interacted with the form every day. They had no funding. They put a call out to the community that anyone who wanted to help was more than welcome to start showing up. And we literally had people in the city across the country and the world that they they made their way to Sevilla and they helped out for three weeks or three months. None of them came with backgrounds around public assistance. We brought the practice and the method about how to begin to look at a problem in a new way. And we worked with them side by side. We had a musician, we had a coder, we had an international consultant, business consultant, we had a designer, we had a social worker, all from different walks of life who came and volunteered their time. Then the Sevilla team did something unusual. They invited the leadership from the state of Michigan to come to their office and walk through their learnings. We took 5,000 square feet of a raw urban space here in Detroit, and we converted it into an immersive story and experience. When they came off the elevator, we converted a whole hallway into a Department of Health and Human Services office. I asked them to sit down, and I walked up to them and handed them the 45-page form, and I asked them if they could fill it out. After they got through that, I walked them through a hundred foot long journey map that was scrolled across the floor of what happens to that application. And I took them on a journey of one person applying for food assistance. And it took hands sketched out on a hundred foot long journey map for them to actually make it from the beginning to the end. All of that allows leaders to hear the voice. It's not Michael Brennan saying that. It wasn't Sevilla saying that. It was actually those that they're serving. That was their the voice that was narrating this story. And when you begin to hear it that way, as a leader, you can receive it. It's very hard to argue that, no, this wasn't the person's experience. <laughs> that was their experience. And 
for the state leaders, they were able to get an immersive experience unlike they had ever had before, which allowed them to see the problem through a new set of eyes. It reminds me of in community organizing, one of the old sort of axioms of organizing is you can't argue with people's experience. And I think as you're describing, it's even more powerful if you have the experience yourself. That's one thing for people to say, I have this experience, but when you have it yourself, (laughs) that's where you build that empathy. Right. And it's in those moments that then you can step into conversations, important conversations that need to be had. In some ways, that gives you permission, right, to move into the conversations that really need to be had. We lifted up for them what it could look like if you had designed it through the eyes of those that you're serving and their frontline workers and said, that would be worth exploring. And that put us on a two-year journey of taking that early prototype and walking with courageous state of Michigan leadership over a two-year period to finally sunset what had been there for 30, 35 years and to bring a new way forward. Hi, everyone. I'm taking a short break here to let you know about our guest for the next episode of Everyday Changemakers, the Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, Senior Minister of Middle Collegiate Church in New York City, Executive Director of The Middle Project, and host of the television show, Just Faith. Every single cell in my body screams, yes, 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 this is you, this is now, this is the time. Everything you've done before, everything you've experienced, all the things, the bad, the good, the learnings, the secular, the sacred, everything is now on the table for you to help this nation. And it just feels like a vortex stepping through a glass, stepping into a field that is just magic. Listen to the next episode, the season finale, to hear how Jackie's faith journey has taught her to claim her own space in the universe, to take risks, and to embody love in the world. Okay, back to the conversation. And can you describe in that experience for yourself, how were you changed or what did you walk away with? on the other side of that two years and like sunsetting this old way of doing things and fundamentally bringing about a new system that just works better for people. How did that experience change you? What I came to realize that too often in change work, we go too wide, too fast. We get very focused on the money and the program. And if I said to you, how would you go about affecting the public benefit system in America. I think it would be a long, long time before someone said the best way to affect a public benefit system is work on the paper application. Like I wouldn't have gone there, but it is the place in which we started. So it was like one of the smallest organizing units within that system. We called it a key domino. You know, it's not very many states, not many, many organizations go spend two years on a public application form. 
what's interesting about doing that deep work so rooted in the user experience is out of that you end up affecting business processes technology policy because two and a half million people organize around this forum 5,000 caseworkers organize around the forum so a resident now can get the it could be hour hours week to get an application completed they can now get it completed in under 20 minutes time really matters if i only have a lunch break or i have a child with me and i can actually go in and get this completed in under 20 minutes that's real and material they find that they're able to get it completed because they actually understand it because it's written in a way that they can consume it and feel like they got down accurate information so when they arrive uh, up at the front to hand it in, it's not a combative relationship, but rather it starts off the relationship with the state in a better place. Caseworkers find that they're spending 75% less time correcting errors so that they're able to actually spend time with a client, not on just how to get the form completed, but how do we actually help you move into programs and services uh, to, to meet the wider needs that you're, you're wrestling with. They were finding that their uh, ability to move a case from the beginning to end, the speed of that improved by 40%. And that their relationship with a client was able to get deeper than it had previously. It's like breaking down a, a wall or like a barrier. Totally. I can see you versus just a case number. We don't have to battle over all of this stuff that gets bound up in the complexity of 18,000 words, but rather we can be on the work of trying to solve the problem. I'm less of an eligibility data entry person. I can actually be more of a problem solver. I'm less trying to service the system. I actually can help work with you as an individual. And if you take all that times one, that's one thing, but if you take that times two and a half million residents in the state of Michigan every single year, that elegance and design and brings simplicity and humanity into it scales up two and a half million times. And that's a really powerful force. Whereas every complexity and confusion that gets left in the system that multiplies up two and a half million times, and that just adds to the weight and the inefficiencies and a lack of humanity. Right, right, right. It's exponential in exactly. either either way. But how much better if you can make something exponentially better than exponentially worse? Right. Well, on that, I mean, what do you imagine is possible if more leaders in the field, change makers were practicing the I don't know, you know, practicing dropping from expert to beginner or learner. I think the biggest thing is it gives ourselves room as leaders. There's so much pressure on leaders to deliver certainty, to deliver the proof point to deliver the ROI. And if we can give ourselves enough grace and to those that we're leading or side by side with and permission to say, I don't know, 
but I do have a way to uncover the learnings. And the way is we're going to get much, much closer to those that we serve. We're going to sit at kitchen tables and at family room. And we're not going just on a Likert scale of 20 questions. We're going to spend two, three, four hours at a time to really understand their need so that we can get a better frame on the edges of the map of what the problem might be that allows us then to reimagine solutions. And I just don't believe that many of our current practices of problem solving historically that come out of an industrial period is delivering that level of insight to allow the creative force that resides inside of individuals and institutions to be able to pull forward new solutions. We can't fund our way to the solutions. <laughs> you know, it's just, it'll never be the answer. It's part of the equation, but it's never the answer. And I think the answers reside in the subject matter expert. And to me, the subject matter expert is the person that we're trying to serve. Yes. In closing then, would you care to offer, it could be an intention, it could be an affirmation, it could be a prayer since I knew you grew up in church for what you are hoping as you move forward, you know, not squinting to see yourself. What are you hoping to bring into the world now through Sevilla and beyond? I'm trying to actually simplify I think change work is at times asking too much out of individuals and it's crushing them. In order to give voice to somebody else or an issue, sometimes the leaders themselves lose their own voice, end up squinting to see themselves. I think for every leader to ask the question each day, how can I love myself and the world better? And how do I just do the good in front of me? Because I think how we change the world is to do the good right in front of us in the places in which we live and work. That ultimately will lead to the changes that we need. And there's just no way to get to that unless leaders do the right kind of care and attention to themselves, their own health and well-being, both physically, spiritually, mentally. And I think it's one of the biggest areas of neglect because the cause is so great, so significant, so needed that a leader can get consumed and lost in that. And it takes daily attention to make sure the right grace, care, and feeding is given to him or herself. A good question just to visit each day is just how do I care and love myself better and so that I can care and love the world better? And how do I just do the good in front of me And I think if we stay close to that knitting, many, many things will occur that we would have never gotten to if we tried to go for the grand wide scale. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Everyday Changemakers. You can find more episodes at kamararose.com slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really liked this episode, please leave a review in Apple Podcasts. Everyday Changemakers is a production of yours truly in collaboration with markmedia.org. 
until next time.